0: I have two points for us this morning in our time together as we come near to closing kind of what we've done for months now in the book of Hebrews, and that is work hard together to understand the theological teaching of the book and the construct of the book. How are we learning of Christ and His sacrifice requires a lot of work. There's a lot going on, particular to Hebrews, when we consider much of it is, is built on an understanding of the Old Covenant and its ordinances, its ministry, and the law, and how it relates to the gospel, and how the Christian then relates to the law through the gospel. And there's a lot of hard work that has been achieved up to this point as we come near them this morning to concluding our time of that kind of clearly theological argumentation of the sermon to the Hebrews. I just have two points as we kind of come to that Point. One: the purpose of the law. I'd like to cover, again, as he, it, through the text, the purpose of the law. Secondly, as again, we kind of come to our time of concluding the theological argument of the sermon: the purpose of the law, and number two, the provision of Christ, a theme that we have been singing this morning to see that through the text this morning. So jumping right in, consider with me what is, as we wrestle through the text of what the Apostle is helping us to learn, is the purpose of the law, according to this argument that he is making here in this passage. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 as we consider the purpose of the law here. Verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, indeed of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. First consideration is we look at this text about what it's teaching concerning the purpose of the law. We would call this the shadowy goodness, or perhaps you wouldn't ascribe to that. I would call it the shadowy goodness of the law versus the perfect work of Christ. So we're considering the shadowy goodness. Notice right there at the very beginning of verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things in its correspondence to reality, to perfection, to Christ, it is a shadow of good things. So there is a shadowy goodness in the law. So it is that we ought to be balanced in our understanding of the law and the gospel as New Testament and New Covenant believers. Here the apostle does affirm the goodness of the law. And we have sang it this morning. I forget what song now. It's come and it's gone, but it was great. It was your righteousness, O God. And we praise him for your law. We do, we still, we praise you for your law. It is a goodness and a reflection of your righteousness. We praise you for your law. We don't look back as New Covenant members and say, we despise your law, O Lord. Just give us Jesus. The apostle affirms there is a goodness to the law of the Lord. What is that goodness that we would say if we even look back on the Ten Commandments, what we would describe as the moral law? What is good? We would easily suggest it is righteous, just, and holy. Those are goodnesses. It is a display of our God in righteousness, justice, and holiness. We praise you, O God for your law while we maintain that as the apostle does when we're considering what is its purpose and function we affirm its goodness while strictly maintaining that in reference to perfection in reference to perfection for the worshiper it is utterly powerless It is a good law. It is good. And we affirm it and we praise him for it. But in reference to perfection, what it can give to the worshiper, it is utterly powerless. Does that mean? Doesn't it mean that if then if perfection is the state where he began arguing in chapter seven, is God's perfect standard. And we need to. We need to be seen by God through Christ in that perfect standard. And the law over here cannot get us there. How then do we affirm it is good? We affirm that it is good because it is good, holy, just, and righteous. As its function was never to be confused with providing what God in Christ alone can provide. This is an issue of function. I I want to point out two quick things, if you could now, out of all that I've kind of described in this paragraph, pull out two small pieces. They would describe, number one, two clear points emerge from his affirming, and I hope that you affirm the shadowy goodness of the law, that it's a good law. Two clear points. Number one, God's righteous requirement of sinners is not an approximate idea. So, for everyone in here, all of us, if we would for a moment consider within our own conscience, which creation cries out to your own conscience to convict you, so I know that you're convicted. We would all describe ourselves as sinners. Okay, then. In that category, there is a category that speaks to our condition that is a requirement that we need to be cloaked in, we need to be covered in, and that is a standard of righteousness. We need that robe in exchange of rags. We need it. And we recognize that robe of righteousness is not an approximate idea, but the standard of that robe is perfection. Perfection. Notice how we see that in the text. For we're affirming the goodness of the law when we consider using it and understanding it rightly according to its purpose. Notice how he argues this, that God's standard is not an approximate, but it is an exact accounting of righteousness. Notice how he argues that, beginning in verse 1. For since, here's his argument about the law. For since the law has but a shadowy goodness... Instead of the true form of these realities, what does he say there about the possibility of the law to achieve in the life of the sinner a perfect standing before God? What does he it say its ability is? It can never. Do you see that? Do you see how he's arguing? Four sense The law is this, it can never do that. There's a confusion of the law's purpose and function in our lives if we pursue it as a means for perfection. It's not that the law is wrong. It is us who would pursue it as a means to our own righteousness. It is us, not the law. For since the law is a shadow that corresponds to reality, we must not confuse law with the reality. For it wasn't even purposed to serve you that way. As a believer, hidden in the righteousness of Christ by faith, consider your ongoing walk with the Lord. It's the same. God's standard has been met by Christ's perfect obedience. You share in that by faith. But how foolish are we that we return to a form of law abiding in order to achieve our own righteousness yet again in holiness. That's not the function or the purpose of the law. That we would, by our own energy, by our own strength, by our own forms of law and legal legislation, pursue a righteousness that we feel can be achieved by our own energies through these means. I think Paul said something like that to the church at Galatia, didn't he? Oh, foolish Galatians. You began by the Spirit. Will you now be made perfect according to the flesh? Jesus saved me, but now I'm saved. Now it's my own energy striving against the grain. That's not even the function of the law. And yet how quickly we create our own laws to achieve those kind of ends. The law is good when we use it lawfully according to its function. It affirms two things I said, and I've only gotten to one. God's righteous requirement of sinners is not an approximate idea, but it is a standard of perfection. And the law can never achieve it. That's his argument in verse 1 at the first portion there. It can never achieve what the reality will bring. Now, the second piece that we learned from its very first beginning issue of it's a shadowy goodness. But it is not the true form of its reality. It is good, but it isn't the full substance of goodness. It is this. Law requirements we must get this please law requirements are not gospel promises law requirements are not gospel promises what do i mean by that well look at the statement that he says for since the law here's its proper function this is its affirming its goodness it has a function. It is a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Since it is only a shadow, it can never, it wasn't even its function, its purpose, it cannot provide. By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It can never achieve it. Why not? Because it is not a promise of provision. It never was. It is a requirement that must be met. And you cannot meet it. Law requirements are not gospel promises. What is the law requirement here? Continual sacrifices. The ordinance required bringing of sacrifice. Sacrifice. And there was not a promise in your bringing of the sacrifice, a making of your soul perfect. In other words, let me summarize it this way. In the purpose of the law, the law's ordinances, bringing sacrifices year after year, the law's ordinances point, but they do not provide. I used this illustration once before. I think it is helpful. I know it is to me so perhaps to you also, that when we consider the function of the law, the ongoing function of the law, in the life of the Christian, and we'll get to that in our conclusion of what he describes uh, towards the end of our text this morning. But the first portion is we consider that the law, its purpose or its function, we affirm its goodness. According to its purpose. Not when we affirm its goodness by taking it and trying something that it was never meant to achieve. But what is it meant to achieve? It is, in this analogy, it is a compass. Right? And, and here you are, and you're lost, and you take out your compass, and your compass can say, this is due. I don't even, you know how Pittsburgh is a bunch of triangles everywhere? So you never really know what south, east, west etc there's another direction but whatever it is right <laughs> so it, the, the so this makes sense to you right a compass what is its purpose well well i'm coming to the compass in order that it would pick me up literally and take me north no that that would be a misuse and a poor expectation of the compass a compass according to function is a good thing oh no it's wasteful It can't take me there. No, Well, you're you're demanding too much. You're seeking wrong usage. The compass is a powerful tool that indeed can point you there. But it cannot take you there. This is the use of God's law. It points like a compass. But it cannot provide by promise and the, the direction of law would say do christ this direction it points me there but it can't by its own power provide for me only christ can provide while the law does point so we affirm the goodness of the law but it is shadowy it can point but not provide this is the way we would understand the purpose of the law. I would ask this question then, perhaps you are asking in your mind as well as we consider that the law is good and that it, one uses it lawfully to point, not with expectation of providing. What then is the shadowy goodness that we behold in the law? When I come to the law and I say it is good, I need a little bit more. How exactly is it good for me? What do I behold when I look upon God's law? We behold a mirror. A mirror in the law. What do I mean in reference to beholding a mirror? So I've moved from compass to mirror. Are you tracking? We're leaving the compass and we're considering the mirror. We behold a mirror in God's law. That is the shadowy goodness of the law And its proper function is to function as that mirror highlighting my weakness. Or as the text says, if you'll join with me looking at the text at verse 2 and verse 3, it cannot make you perfect, but this is what it will do for you according to its proper function, verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, See, there's there's not that provision there. That's not even its purpose. They would no longer have any consciousness of sin. That's what the law does. Did you see that? That, 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 If it performed what Christ can provide, then there would be no more what? Consciousness of sin. Where do I get that from? The law. If it made me perfect like Jesus can then I wouldn't have a consciousness of sin. But as it is according to its proper function, which I affirm is good, what is its goodness? That it displays a consciousness of sin to me. Or as the text continues, verse 3, but in these sacrifices, in this lawfulness, in these ordinances, there's a revelation or a reminder in them of sin. Every year. That is. The shadowy goodness of the law is that it functions as a mirror highlighting my weakness. It shows to me a consciousness of my own sin. And it is to me a constant reminder. Of my sin principle. This is why we say the law's ordinances do what? They point. But they do not provide. In the mirror, as we have spoken once before, is he summarizing a law gospel here that must be grasped that we might flee to Christ and be cloaked in his righteousness. It is that mirror that stands up and you look at it. And as we spoke before, each one of us this morning, at some point, we hope and trust we have used a mirror. And that mirror isn't an end in of itself. It guides and it directs to the toothpaste. It guides, directs to the hair product, it guides, it directs to where your buttons are lined up. It is a provisionary function. But it cannot button my shirt for me. It cannot put the toothpaste out and it on the toothbrush. But it shows to me I need these elements. It guides me. But if I come to it and I say, I'm just going to stand before the mirror and get dressed. The apostle affirms, it cannot do that because... It never was designed to function in that manner. Oh, the law's no good then. No, 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 no. You're mishandling the law. You're seeking from a shadow what only the reality can provide. It can point, it can tell you, you have sin. Do you see this standard? Yes, I do. Where do you mark up on it? Somewhere down here. Okay, then. This is not a solution. This isn't a point of exposure. Flee to Christ. This is where the passage is going to go so that we first grasp that the law's ordinances and sacrifices are good, but only in that we recognize they point to a greater reality. They can require and they can point, but they cannot provide and make righteous. What are the two things out of this text that we consider being uh, described here in verse 2 and 3? There are two things here. I I just happen to come across two each and every time, I think, my way through here. So, I, uh, I don't know how that symmetry worked out. But here, the ordinances point out two very specific elements about me that the law points out. There are two. When I look upon the law... Under this sacrificial system, there is something that it addresses and makes clear to me. Number one, I have transgressed the covenant. That's what it shows me. It's a revelation that I have transgressed the covenant. There are covenant requirements in my relationship with God. I have to abide by them, obey them, and come and bring my offering by faith according to my what? Transgressing of that covenant. So as I'm coming through the ordinance, what is the mirror showing me? a consciousness of my sin, I have transgressed the covenant. In other words, I'm a sinner. God said, do this, and I chose willfully to do that. And I come in this ceremony by faith to receive forgiveness of my sins, and that's what this ceremony, number one, reveals to me, that I am a transgressor of God's law. Number two, so I have transgressed the covenant. That, that, that helps us, I think, even right now in this moment to recognize sin is not some broad, abstract idea. It is concrete and actual. If we came thinking Jesus is an idea, sin is a category preachers tend to talk about, and this is all kind of the realm of uh, abstract and, and, and ideas. We recognize concretely here in the text, as physical as that animal is by he who is bringing it, sin is real it's an actual experience that an individual has. And as made clear through the ordinance itself, I am actually a transgressor of God's law, concretely so, physically so, spiritually so. Secondly, it reveals in this uh, very bloody process that judgment is the natural consequence an inevitable outcome of my covenant breaking. Judgment is the outcome. How so? Here is blood being shed. So there's a real category of sin and transgression, and there, in bringing my sacrifice for this actual sin and transgression, there is a very real expression of its consequence, judgment. What is the judgment on the table here in the sacrificial system that they're pointing to Death. Death is the category of judgment in relationship to violating the law. That's the category. I share as a transgressor of the covenant. I come by the legislation of the covenant to seek by faith a forgiveness of my sin. What is the process that it reveals to me? I am that person who is confessing a transgressor of the covenant to death is the outcome and judgment of my sinning, as exemplified to me through this ordinance. This animal dying in my stead. I learn these things by the covenant in a beautiful function and purpose in the law. So perhaps the question is at this point, as I say to you, it is a beautiful expression. You say, I'm not so sure. How is highlighting my sin and judgment a goodness of the law. How is being made more aware, perhaps even this morning, we should not talk about categories of sin and judgment. We should talk about other broad, helpful categories, such as your best life now, your most powerful pathway to this, the way to channel God's energy to achieve that goal. We ought to leave behind categories of sin and judgment, but that's not true. The text is clear. We affirm the goodness of the law according to that function. And we're asking, how is that good? How is some pastor right now speaking on sin and judgment and how everybody in the room shares in it a goodness to anybody listening? We either roll our eyes and dismiss. Or we think, you know, same old, same old. Or we thought, I'm not up to hearing it today. Or perhaps by faith we do come. Lay hold of God's promise even in moments of revelation to us of our sin and His coming judgment. How is it a goodness? How does it serve me to hear this from the text? Before I move to the solution within the text, I would cite uh, just for our purposes this morning as we are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. I'll give you uh, uh, one quick question and answer a long ways off from where we're currently at right now. Question and answer make clear here through the Heidelberg Catechism question 115. It's true. We have a long way to go. It answers of this question of how is it good that I hear of my own sin and judgment. How is this good as I look upon the law to be shown the consciousness and a constant reminder of my sin? Answer. So that as long as we live we may learn more and more To know our sinful nature. How is that? Right, exactly, but how is that good? And so, having known, the more earnestly seek... (laughs)